Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm doing very well. We have been ultra busy, haven't we? Ultra. 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 And also, also ultra successful. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't want to brag, but, you know. I do. And it's not bragging. <laughs> it's just being accurate. It's just being accurate. But what do we figure out? Um, in the past eight weeks, we've had eight acquittals. Um, it, which is, I, you know, at least in my career, that's the longest winning streak. And this is uninterrupted with any losses. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's never happened <laughs> in my career. Well, it's I'm, just been amazing. I'm, you know, and it goes back to what I've said many times that um, a lot of criminal cases are really thin. And the reason they're thin is because prosecutors don't think that they need to, um, they just take the police reports and just accept them, you know, and just charge it based on that. And they don't do any investigation. And and they don't realize the weaknesses. Well, you know, they don't you know, I know we've talked about, we've talked about this a lot, but I, I think it'd be worth it um, to really focus on, how that process occurs, because uh, you and I both know that this is one of the most common questions we get from usually either prospective clients or family members of people we're representing who are in custody. In fact, I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday along these lines where from his perspective, and by the way, it seems like a very logical perspective, he doesn't understand why he's sitting in custody uh, when it's clear to him and everyone he knows and all who support him that there's no basis whatsoever for criminal charges. Mm-hmm. And I had to explain to him in, in a, which is difficult to do sometimes because it belies logic that there's a, a cultural thing that's been evolving over the years. I know you talk about it a lot in all the presentations you do um, in your dealings with um you know, the state bar legislators, your in defensive defense project that you put together, and also the lawsuit that you're spearheading against the state public defender's office. But, you know, there is a, a culture of um, basically charging anything if you can try and make it fit. The old put the square peg into the round hole ah, uh, and pound yeah, it as hard right. as you can. That's, right. So I was explaining to this person that it makes perfect sense to me why he would be so frustrated. After all, he's sitting behind bars wearing an orange jumpsuit right now. And the way that he's explaining the allegations against him, I mean, any reasonable, logical person would say, yeah, you're right. There's nothing to, this is just insane. You should not be in that situation. However, (laughs) you know, the process whereby charges uh, are issued is, uh, it's just like uh, Teddy Roosevelt said once uh, he was reading the book, the jungle by Upton Sinclair and uh, somebody on the white house staff came by and gave him a plate of sausages. He threw him out the window and I think it hit one of the gardeners in the head. And uh, <laughs> he made a speech later when he was talking about, cause you know, in that book, they talk about how sausage is made. It's literally part right. of the book. Right. You know? And uh, it's a, especially back at the turn of the century, it was, not a very it's not oh. something you'd want to know you would do you don't want to know that, how that sausage is made is actually it was in hamilton if you remember 
Yes, yes, that's during right. the song. Um, uh, no one, no one else is in the room, or something like that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> but the saying goes, you know, if you could see how laws are made, um, or in this analogy, how criminal complaints are drafted, and how sausage is made, they would both make you sick. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so you know, I have a perfect example of this. That was the case I just had, um, and. Uh, so it was a child abuse allegation, repeated acts, which, as you know, requires three or more acts during a specified period of time. And so he charges this, and the complaint alleges four acts. However, um, the, 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 the little girl that was involved, and I say little because she was six, um, his daughter, uh, the supposed victim, who it turns out was manipulated by mom, but um, she was brought in for an interview and she only talked about a single one. And the other one, um, so the other three were in question. So one of them supposedly was witnessed by this manipulative mother and the other two, the judge allowed in hearsay of the mother saying that the daughter told her X, Y, and Z about these other two incidents. Ultimately, it was a not guilty across the board. And the reason was is because this prosecutor refused to accept that he had made a bad charging decision and um, also refused to accept when I presented him with um, the single one that the girl talked about. I presented him with statements from her siblings who were there and were eyewitnesses and said it didn't happen. Oh, wait. So this is all pre-trial. This is all pre-trial. And he he did the right thing. You tried to. I tried. And I said, look, you have nothing here. Um, This didn't happen. And he proceeded anyways. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you don't blame him for that necessarily, but um, I (laughs) I think a lot of people think that it should work that way. Like, why can't you just go tell the DA this didn't happen? Well, you know, I I tried to explain to the family, you know, the mother, like my client's mother and father and his sister, because they were coming to court every time. And they were like, wait, you gave him those and he's still going ahead. Why? Why is it? They just couldn't wrap their head around it. And you and I both know. The prosecutors, once they dig their heels in, they just don't want to let go. Yeah. And, and it's true even of people who have been in prison for 20 years, get exonerated through DNA, through the Innocence Project. And the prosecutors of the original case both all say, you know, the, the, commonly say, I should say, um, commonly say, yeah, no, we still think he's guilty. Even though science, like indisputable science has said that's not the case. Well, so you know, you know how science is, though. I mean, it's it's something that, as we know, has uh, without any doubt, you know, more than beyond a reasonable doubt, just beyond any doubt, has established on many many occasions, many many occasions, that the person could not possibly have committed the crime. But then, leave it to a creative and bitter mind to think of some way how you know, to dance around it and say, in spite of all that, but you you know why? I mean, it's a psychological thing. If you take the obligation seriously to quote unquote, protect the public and enforce the law, which is a noble thing, young lawyers fresh out of law school like like to um, 
you know, appreciate the fact that that's an important role in society. I felt the same way when I started as a prosecutor, like, you know, here I am, I'm going to make this a better world. Um, it's, but all of this is just so subjective. You, people can convince themselves of anything. And how often do you hear a prosecutor accusing our clients of engaging in the same behavior that they always engage in? Meaning, yeah. uh, you know, if there's a mental element, well, he knew what he was doing. He was just telling himself it was okay. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's what prosecutors do, right? Let me inject something here real quick to follow up on something you said, which is you were talking about like, okay, young lawyers, they want to get in and do justice and stuff. And I was involved in a, um, a phone call today, actually, with um, Senator Tammy Baldwin's office um, because they were interested in the lawsuit. But the subject came up about um, attracting lawyers to engage in criminal law. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you, it really, it really struck me and it struck all of us, really, about the young lawyers coming up who are facing a system that in their imagination uh, through movies and TVs, everything goes to trial and resolves in an hour or whatever. And, um, you know, with little or no preparation. And, um, And the truth is, is that in the 60s and 70s, 30, 35% of cases went to trial, you know? And now it's 3%. And so what they, when they look at the reality of, you know, going into criminal law, either side, prosecution or defense, um, what they look at is paper pushing or just shoveling people through the system. Yeah, and, that doesn't seem and very exciting. <laughs> not very attractive to them. And I don't blame them at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, because, you know, you could work at an insurance company and have a lot less stress. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, uh, for me, that would be way more stress. I mean, <laughs> having my butt glued to a chair for 12 hours a day, pushing paper and meeting quotas and billing hours, that would be. Well, uh, that 3% be is, a, is not us. That We, we want to go to trial every time. So, anyways, we'll pick it up on the other end. All right. Time for a break. We'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense. Oh my gosh! You know, there's so much going on, dude. I know you get you gave me a thought right before okay. we had to take, take the break, where we graciously paused for our commercial sponsors. But uh, I saw an episode of uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. Uh, I call the same Kevin. one. I know exactly what you're talking about. The Law and Order one. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> he he had it. He hit it spot on because. You know, what we were just talking about before the break is this phenomenon where the general public gets a sense of what the criminal system is all about. And what he was talking about brilliantly was not just the way that the show tends to go and the way that people are always guilty. And, you know, it's sort of this uh, social phenomenon that shapes and molds people's view about how, quote unquote, justice should work. But he also got into... You know, you see at the end of every show, produced by Dick Wolf, mm-hmm. and he he went back and right. looked at all, all sorts of different interviews and comments that that Dick Wolf had made about what his goal about the show was, and he he made no bones about it. It's not about reality. It's not about 
um, you know, portraying the justice system in an accurate way. It's about enter- pure entertainment. And I've said this always about that show. It's basically exactly the same as you remember back in the 50s and 60s, like uh, Dragnet. Well, no, no, but even oh, simple, Mason. Like Alfred Hitchcock presents or oh. the Twilight Zone. It's a formula where yeah. it leads you, it builds suspense. That's what Law and Order is. It builds suspense. And then, you know, there's a shocker in the last three minutes of the show, just like all those things. So it's basically just in a different format. I mean, I suppose it could be in the context of a philatelic or pneumostatic uh, convention or something. But, you know, it's more exciting to have it be about crime. Um, so, but he made a very good point that it really, I mean, this show has been on the air for what, 30, 30 something years, right? Unbelievable. And, uh, it has really made a big impact in terms of how people are looking at, um, or have expectations about the way the justice system works. Now, nobody's dumb enough to think that everything gets resolved in one hour. I know that, but you see things like, uh, and he had this whole long segment about different episodes where the, the role of the defense lawyer was completely vilified and they make it, you know, some smarmy, probably, <laughs> you know, wearing fancy suits and throwing their weight around and it's all about the money. And, yeah. and, they, uh, they and, have no and by the way, the uh, uh, the police and the prosecutors are totally outmanned by the defense. <laughs> out resourced on everything. That's right. There, there are a bunch of episodes where the, the cops are complaining that they just can't keep up with all the massive resources that the defense firm has. You yeah. know? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite part, actually. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's really interesting to think about because that's part of the problem is that um, just the way the public perceives things. Now, on that note, I'm getting ready for a seminar presentation that's coming up in uh, November. In, hopefully you'll be there, right? I'm 100% going to be there. I will be. Okay. I, I actually have a pea shooter um, that, that I plan to use. Uh, that's better than the Rotten Tomatoes. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, but you you know what? You're tough enough. You can handle anything. That's what I know. But one of the things that I'm I'm putting into my uh, presentation, I'm st- it's still in its uh, formative phase, but the fact that in spite of, you know, how we try to anticipate how people generally view things, you know, if you're going to guess how any particular individual looks at crime or whether there's fear of you know, bad guys involved or whatever. Cause that's really what law and order is all about, right? There's a bad guy. They find, they figure out who the bad guy is and then they catch him. He gets found guilty, whatever, you know? Um, but the thing that I've, I've learned with every trial I do is to have a lot more respect for jurors than they ever taught me in law school or in any of my trial advocacy classes. And certainly a lot more than they taught me in my prosecutor school because the the way that they teach that at least back when I was going through all that was that jurors are stupid. I mean that's that's what prosecutors believe. You know, that's what they're taught to believe. You have to talk down to them. You the, the whole thing's all about making sure that you know common people that aren't trained in the law can be talked down to like they're five years old. It's called the reptilian mind. Like, right. And, and that's, I think still how prosecutors are trained for some reason. And there's, there's a whole 
number of reasons that we could go into for a great deal of time if we had the time, which we don't. But just to put a thumbnail sketch on it, there's an entire universe of uh, people that train lawyers, and they're almost always people who aren't active trial lawyers. They're more of the philosophical, read the book, um, go through the exercises yeah, type right, thing. Right, you know, right, and I've been through right. so many classes, so many courses where they're telling you, do it this way, do it that way, think about it this way. And it's someone who's never even done a trial. Their whole job is just to talk about what it's like to do a trial, not having done one. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I just, uh, I find that tapping into uh, ways to make sure that you're, um, you're, you're identifying with, you're connecting with, you're, and you're showing respect for the jury. The, I mean, that's after all one of the you know supposedly genius things about our system to try and stop wrongful convictions from happening is that you bring people in that aren't involved in the charging decision process. They're not involved in the gathering of the evidence. They're not supposed to have what we all recognize as that natural bias in an adversarial system. I mean, you know, it's in that, in that context, bias isn't necessarily a bad word. It's just the reality because police that, and a, and a good police officer who's been trained well will fully admit the job isn't to gather evidence in favor of the defense. It's to gather evidence to support a prosecution. And the police are at the pointy end of the spear where the evidence is first gathered in the form of statements, physical evidence, whatever. And any human being with a brain, you know, like we all have, it influences every action you take along the way. And much like when I'm reviewing a case file, once when I'm trying to understand how I'm going to defend the case, it's an evolving process. And when I think I know what's going on, I try to look for evidence to either support that or tell myself that I'm wrong in some way. So police do exactly the same thing. When you're on the scene, you see some broken glass on the ground. You see some blood on the doorway. There's a girl crying in the corner. I mean, those are all things that start to influence what the person believed happened, even though that's got nothing to do with when the jury ultimately will have to make those decisions. But the preservation, collection, presentation, and forwarding of all that evidence to the DA's office, who, by the way, doesn't sit down and interview any of these people when they make a charging decision. That happens late. If ever, it happens when they're getting close to trial. Um, But it's (laughs) going back to how sausage is made. There's just so many uh, variables in this process that result in it being, um, you know, unfortunately kind of arbitrary. Well, yeah. Interesting that you should say that two things the, the trial that I was referring to before the child abuse one, where the client was found not guilty, all counts. Um, the I spoke to one of the jurors, and um, she told me that, um, well, th- that they struggled. And despite the utter paucity of evidence from the state, and I told her, that's, the way, that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. You should struggle. You know, and think about it. And I'll tell you, I didn't talk to all the jurors, just the one, but she described, you know, so the the whole deliberation process. And I was very impressed that they took it seriously. They listened to the judges, you know, um, 
admonition about if the client doesn't testify because they wanted to hear all jurors want to hear the client testify. And, but they listened to it and disregarded it. And they, um, uh, they really like took seriously what each witness was saying. And this in this case, they were, the witnesses were mostly children. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and they had children, she had children about the same age too. And, um, and so she was filling in the blanks as people do. Right. Yeah. Natural. Right. And then the other interesting thing was there was one police officer, a detective that testified. And I asked her about that and she's like, yeah, she was terrible. She was like, (laughs) thought she owned the place. She was like, thought it was a big joke, you know, like, uh, anyway, that's, you know, look, we have to get back to the uh, Trump subpoena for the January 6th committee. Okay, let's do that. But first, let's listen to some sponsor messages. How's that? Got it. All right, we'll be right back. All right, so we were going to lead off with the um, January 6th committee's announcement that they intend to subpoena former President Donald Trump, which was a news item that came out on Thursday. And all of our banter and chit-chat led us down other paths. And uh, we, you know, now we're going to start with the lead story at the halfway point in the show. So, (laughs) (laughs) so what what I, I I had kind of a busy day that, that, you know, I, I haven't really been following too much. I just saw, you know, the news blurb that came out. In fact, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to look at it very carefully. What I do know though, is that it's kind of making the, the news circuits that, this announcement that the committee plans on uh, exercising its subpoena power, you know, with the the primary party in interest here. Um, I mean, it wasn't surprising to me, but it's it was like somebody announced that, you know, it was a shockwave. It was like an an 11.0 Richter scale earthquake, you know, that this was like, well, you know, any, any, any investigation of a major situation, is going to start with the underlings and work their way up. And they're going to try and um, flip people like, like for example, the lawyer that certified that all documents, you know, responsive to Pina at Mar-a-Lago had been turned over. And of course they weren't. And now she is cooperating or at least, talking to the department of justice but so anyway they 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 start with those people uh, but obviously trump is at the center of whatever they're looking at here obviously and um and so it's not surprising the progression but you know i've heard all this naysaying about like and this isn't even an indictment. This is just a career, congressional committee. But, you know, of all this naysaying about it, it's like, oh, well, if we if we indict him, um, it's going to be like, you know, blood in the streets and, you know, all this new civil war and you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, how can you not look at the flagrant violations of law 
and make the decision to indict despite whatever consequences there might be. And there will be consequences. There will be this active resistance, this, this, this um, pushback from um, the big lie about the election in 2020 uh, and all of that. But how can you not? You can't let it go because that, that will normalize it. Yeah. Uh, the principle behind that argument is just, well, it's, it's un-American. It's, you know, it's not egalitarian. Think, think about it. I mean, and the funny thing about all this, I know I've said this before on the show and I know I've said it to you, but, um, you know, a lot of these revelations that the FBI does things a certain way and that they, how they treat people when they do a raid on their place and they make a mess and they don't clean it up and they walk off with things that aren't, you know, relevant to an investigation, but have personal value or, you know, this happens like every day all over the country all the time. It's happening right now to somebody, but it doesn't make news because it's not a famous person or a former president that it happens to. So, you know, all of this, like this is portraying that process, which is the norm, you know, being aggressive uh, and, uh, using the long arm of the law to obtain evidence. And, and like you referenced before, the flipping process, which, you know, if you're talking about Joe Schmo and Cindy, Cindy Lou, <laughs> so, you know, John Q public type people, it does seem very unfair that they get the weakest per- person in the link the, the one that has the least involvement and they start sweating that person so that they work their way up the chain. I mean, again, we deal with it every day, right? Yeah. But to have it happen to somebody who has a public forum and is able to say, this doesn't seem right to me. I mean, for one thing, it just shows that the people in that camp aren't aware of it happening every day and it being fully accepted in every court in America. Um, when these issues are raised about uh, excessive authority or the manner in which uh, a you know warrant is executed or the manner in which investigations are conducted, I mean it it, it has always felt kind of creepy to me. But that's that's just normal. That's just how it is, and it has been that way for a very long time. So then to come out and say, "Good heavens!" Look at this travesty mm-hmm. and singling out this. Per- no, it's not singling anybody out. He's well, being treated like every other American in that situation. Like, it's sort of like the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, uh, which was preceded by, uh, I don't know, six months of negotiation, uh, of requests, of, um, uh, you know, uh, subpoenas, um, you know, uh, with his lawyers, his whole team. Um, he was fully aware of it when it was happening. It was simulcast. He was in New York. He watched it live. Um, right. Like talk, <laughs> you know, about, talk about getting special consideration. You know, normal people yeah. don't get that kind of consideration. And you know what, uh, former president, um, I'm okay with that. You know, but, yeah. but there's so much manipulation going on here. For example, um, just... On Thursday, um, at a uh, well, it might be the last January sixth committee hearing, um, they presented evidence that Tom Fitton, an informal advisor for Trump, who runs a conservative legal group, legal group Judicial Watch, told Trump to declare victory strictly on the basis of votes cast on election day. 
Okay. He wrote an hmm. email suggesting that he, quote, the ballots, the ballots counted by the election day deadline show the American people have bestowed upon me. He told him to say this. Uh, uh, the great honor of re-election to the president of the United States, the deadline by which voters in states across the country must emphasize, choose a president. And so they're like, <laughs> it's the height of manipulation and um, gamesmanship. And, you know, it it just, uh, it's it's kind of disgusting, really, if you, if you really get down to it, about playing with people's minds, people that don't know the process, don't know, you know, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that they're looking for exclusion of people, not inclusion of people. Right. Vote. Right. So the, um, the thing that I've, I've found to be kind of, um, not, I'm not going to say humorous, but I guess, uh, it's cause it's not funny but just at least um, enlightening is the, the general public's response to, again, stat, you know, situation, normal status as usual. And as you say, being uh, treated with actually much more consideration than a regular civilian would be. And to have people just naturally portraying this as some political maneuver. I mean, that's just so simplistic that you could say that about, anything and anyone. But back to your original point, John, which was the suggestion that it would just be too difficult for this country's psyche to endure a criminal prosecution it is really offensive to the people that you and I represent every day. Oh, totally. I mean, what is so totally. special? Okay. An ex-president. Yeah, I get it. You know, special in some ways, but what about the, hardworking man or woman who has to work two or three jobs and they have their single parent with four kids and they're trying to make their way in our society. And we tell them they can, but you know, they end up in a situation who was just found not guilty, who spent tens of thousands of dollars, had his children completely ravaged. Um, and now is still has to, even after a not guilty, still has to deal with the custody problem. Um, right. a fierce court battle. I mean, I mean you're probably having your life you know, turned upside down. We li- we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, you know, guess what? Some person that graduated from law school six months ago has the power to destroy lives. And, pe- you know, it's just the way the process works. Um, <laughs> but again, to say that this situation is so unique and, and here's the other problem. It's so public. It's so very public that it is extremely important that that we never say, let's look the other way because it's too complicated, too hard, or it's going to be too difficult for the country. I mean, or will, that, that was Nixon's will, rationale when he, when he was going to resign just to stop the country from, you know, uh, being ruptured and all that other stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. I think we all believe after the fact that it was a um, – he, he just conveniently got pardoned for all potential criminal offenses shortly after the fact. But anyway, it's hard. To, it's hard to say how you could justify that and not have it have it's there are ramifications one way or the other. Okay. So maybe the criminal conduct to begin with should never have occurred and we wouldn't be in this problem. That's the answer, right? So we, we got to take a break and we'll be right back. We are back 
with more legal defense. Wow. So much going on. So much going yeah. on. How about, how about this um, dismissal? Of, yes. Yep. Uh, and, oh, my God. Have, I'd like, I don't know how many of the viewers have listened to the podcast um, Serial. Is that what it's called? Serial. Yeah, it's called Serial. And um, uh, all about his conviction for a crime that, even if you looked at it in the light most favorable to the state, was very questionable in terms of prosecuting him. And this podcast dug into it. He spent, hmm, I think, 23 years in prison. More than than 20 years. That's right. Um, and, um, And just... I don't know, I guess a month ago, his conviction was reversed and he was released. And um, he, because of this podcast, well, primarily, and with the evidence that they uncovered. And um, just this week, it was formally dismissed. They had a choice to try and retry him. And they just said no. Right. And that was the right decision, obviously. Which wasn't a surprise after the the hearing where they moved to, well, basically the government agreed in the reversal of the conviction. But, you know, here's the thing that drives me crazy about this whole thing. And so this is an extreme example of um, a lot of people putting a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of scrutiny into a conviction that didn't seem right from the beginning. Like it just, it just didn't feel right. And the big reason why the prosecution held fast to this battle, well, number one, because there was a conviction by a jury and that's, you know, basically it, it enables one to say, well, you know, through div- divination, right, or right, right, <laughs> other, right. Uh, other influence, the jury got it right. Like God opened the clouds open up and God said, Hey, convict this guy. Ah. I know he's guilty. Right. But this, uh, this witness, this goofy witness that I forget the dude's name, but he, you know, they interviewed him like six different times and he testified in two separate hearings because there was a trial that he testified. And then there was a, I don't know if it was a retrial or it was a, another hearing that had to do with granting of a retrial, but it, there was n- literally no consistency at all. And the, it just changed and changed and changed and changed to the point where if you, if you compare them all, None of it could be true. And that was really the linchpin. That and all this triangulation cell phone data stuff that has long been since debunked. But even when the scientific underpinnings behind that really came into question, the prosecutors still held on to it. Well, you know, time goes on. Here's the thing. Decades were spent uh, of people questioning this verdict. It resulted in, you know, a very widely publicized, internationally publicized podcast that covered every aspect of it. Then HBO had its own series that really took the other side of the issue. Um, And I'm sure you watched that, the conviction of Adnan Syed. Um, And it was kind of left, you know, so all of this investigation into what went wrong with the trial and other things that came to light and this, that, and the other thing. Well, guess what? It was just, you know, a couple months ago, that it was discovered magically that there was evidence in the prosecutor's file all along, all along. Right. From the very right. beginning. 
that was Brady material that should have been disclosed and actually pointed to one very likely suspect that should have been at least further investigated or could have been presented by the defense as an alternative um, explanation. And then yet another person that, that was also a possible person that had motive and it actually threatened to kill the girl mm-hmm. uh, a couple days before she, she was killed. So, uh, so all this money, time, expense, public scrutiny over the whole thing, and all along in the prosecutor's file, there was stuff that should have been disclosed at the very beginning. And for whatever reason, never saw the light of day until, you know, a new prosecutor comes in and says, wait a minute, what is this? And it takes on an entirely what different going on. Yeah. You know, this is an old story. Unfortunately, um, yeah. The the exonerated Central Park Five, for mm-hmm. example, same story. Um, and it's it's a cultural thing, I think. Where, and I don't mean cultural like the whole country. I mean a culture within law enforcement that says, you know. We reached a conclusion. We are absolutely right. We have shiny badges and guns, and um, we can't be wrong. And once they finally pull the trigger, so to speak, on a prosecution, they refuse to let go. They refuse to admit fault. They refuse. And well, and again, and I, I sorry to interrupt here, but I think that again, that's human nature. If you it is. If you convince yourself that that you're right, you really everybody holds on to that belief in, in so many ways. You know, it's, it's just totally true. Part of totally our true. Yep, and um, uh, it's called confirmation bias, and it affects all of us, and that's a problem. And I don't know how to. I'm, frankly, I don't know how to attack that. You know. Other than well, I do. we should have we have job. robots that do trials, you know, with by <laughs> analyzing. You know, everybody's surveillance. We put chips in everyone's brain, and then it gets downloaded to a central computer system. And then when it's detected that somebody did something wrong, the robots just find us guilty, and that's it. There yeah. has been a suggestion that we have professional jurors, um, and that suggestion actually was from like the business community. Um, where they have complex civil cases. Uh, but also, you know, uh, for, for criminal cases, you know, to have people who are like, you know, literally paid to be jurors and understand the process. And what do you think uh, about that? I don't like it. I don't like it either. That sounds like something that would come from like the business litigation world, because again, they're, they similarly have been trained to have disdain for jurors, (laughs) you know? And by the way, you know, that those types of litigators, the the people that do one trial every eight years, because (laughs) everything gets, everything gets settled for millions of dollars on the, you know, either outside a court or on the courthouse steps or whatever. Litigation is the absolute last resort. And hardly ever happens. But when it does happen, you know, there's millions, millions and millions of dollars at stake. And, you know, the lawyers pull up in their limos and they get out with their Italian suits and the, you know, 
<laughs> and just kind of throw their weight around. And yeah, I'm sure they don't want lay person juries. They'd love to have professional jurors. I think that's a crazy idea, but well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, that's one thing you said was very interesting and that is the lack of trials and the civil world, the civil discovery rules were designed like specifically designed to kind of eliminate trials. I, I remember as a young lawyer, um, uh, another associate, senior associate told me, you know, if your if your case goes to trial, somebody screwed up. Yeah. What he meant what he meant by that was, there you're supposed to know everything about the other side's case through discovery, right. and and so there should be no need for a trial. The whole point of the discovery rules so, was. So let me let me ask this: When you were a young lawyer, was this a conversation that you had like? via telegraph or was it uh Pony <laughs> express or it's actually a uh, raven <laughs> a raven yeah <laughs> so it took a long time you know uh but you know you 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 work with what you got yeah i i should i should really shut my mouth you're only a couple of years older than i know <laughs> i know <laughs> well i'm making fun of us both how about that all right fine, fine. <laughs> Well, um, that, I, I had not heard that, that there's, an, there's a, an actual legitimate suggestion to, like, bring in professional jurors. The problems that that would create, oh, my goodness, I just can't imagine. I, you know, somebody that has a financial uh, incentive to, to participate in the process? Well, I mean, let's, let's flip it on its head. Let's say... Um, Donald Trump is actually indicted and he is at a jury trial and we have professional jurors rather than whatever the mix is from whatever jurisdiction. Um, it might be more objective to have them there than, you know, well, because they're educated and trained in the law and familiar with the law. Right. You know, and also like Clarence they're, Thomas they're, wife. Right. Like someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, woo. Ouch. Um, well, we we got to wrap it up, dude. It's the end of the show. Oh no. We have so much more to cover. All right. Next week then. All right. We'll do it next week. Have a great weekend. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been legal defense with Kirk and John. Talk to you later. Have a great weekend.